Good morning. If you would open your Bible with me, the words from our King and Savior this morning is from Galatians and 1 Corinthians. Galatians 6, 14. Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved by the power of God, for this written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 3 to 5. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5 And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The word of our Lord. Good morning. Well, you may have sensed a theme this morning to the songs, to our scripture readings. Um, I should tell you that what happens often with our singing is that we prepare the song sometimes two to three weeks in advance before we know what the message is going to be or we know who's going to be speaking. In in this case, that, that was definitely true. I 
prepared the song list several weeks in advance uh, before I had solidified on a theme. Uh, But given that tonight is communion as well, uh, it's never a bad thing to sing about Jesus and the cross and his crucifixion and his blood uh, and all of that. But uh, it isn't always that we line everything up like that. But when it does, it's just amazing how it works out. And if you were in Brian's Sunday school class this morning, I thought he was going to preach my message for me. Several of the passages that he brought up, I'm like, well, that's in my notes and that's in my notes. And so uh, that's not a bad thing. Uh, Anyone who teaches or preaches the word really appreciates when the spirit works like that to to dovetail everything together. So I'm not upset by it. Uh, It's actually uh, an exciting thing. I just wanted to get that out there. If you're on uh, our ECF Connection emailing list, and if you're not, I encourage you to go to our website and uh, sign up. It's just a couple of clicks. We just need your first, last name, and an email. But you get things like uh, prayer lists and uh, the scripture readings for for coming Sunday. And those of you that are on the Connection recall that when I sent out my note, I said that we should expect the world to have an antagonistic view of our faith, of our Bibles, uh, and our Savior, Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, the world hated me, then they're going to hate you. So that's something that we should come to expect, and even in a certain sense, embrace. But it's becoming more and more common, even among so-called evangelicals, who we would associate with readily, to attack even Christian doctrine from the inside. Uh, which that to me is somewhat astounding, except that uh, Scripture also tells us that, that there would be uh, sheep or wolves in sheep clothing coming from within to attack as well. But it seems to be coming more to the surface. And it's one thing to misunderstand or twist a doctrine that are taught in the Bible. There's, there's no lack of that uh, out there. You can turn on your radios and TVs and, and get that sense. But to me, it's quite another when those who are, are ministers and preachers are actually questioning the validity of the scriptures that they claim to be getting their doctrines from. I just don't understand how you can say I preach to you a Christ, but I question the source of the information that I'm getting that from. Let me give you a case in point. Andy Stanley uh, recently. You may be more familiar with his father, Charles Stanley, and his in-touch ministries, but Andy, uh, it seems, has taken a position that Christians, those who believe in Christ, in order to keep or regain their faith, must reject the Bible as the authoritative word of God. I was astounded when I heard this. You can listen to the sermon yourself. It's titled, Who Needs God? The Bible Told Me So, and he delivered it on August 28th of this year. He actually uh, mocks the idea of a Bible told me so Jesus. Those are his words. As being childish and unnecessary. This is what he says, a couple of quotes for you. Quote, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is where our trouble began. This is problematic for adults because the implication is that the Bible is the reason we believe. Third, if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, here's the problem. It is all or nothing. Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards religion that comes tumbling down when we discover that perhaps the walls of Jericho didn't. What he's doing there, he's questioning the validity. He goes on, one more quote. Everything rises and falls on whether, not part, but all the Bible is true. And that's unfortunate 
and absolutely unnecessary. Wow. So after undermining the belief in the Bible as the basis for faith, and I would argue that he has somewhat of a point in that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, but we know about Jesus from the Bible, but this is how he wraps up his message. Jesus loves you, this you know, for John, who watched him die and had breakfast with him on the beach, tells you so. Jesus loves you, this I know, because a Pharisee who hated Christians became a Jesus follower, speaking of Paul. And his final quote, the reason you should consider following Jesus is not because the Bible says so. It is not about the Bible, it is all about a who. He's right to a point. It has everything to do with who Jesus claimed to be, and the fact that he punctuated his claims by dying on the cross and rising from the dead and predicting his own death and resurrection. Amen. And and fortunately for us, the eyewitnesses of those events documented, documented those events. They didn't document what they believed. They documented what they saw. Well, does anybody see a problem with his reasoning? I think probably some of our younger Sunday school kids could, could take him to task. Well, how do you know what they documented? It's in the Bible. Right? We weren't there. We didn't see it. So Albert Moeller, uh, in response on his blog site uh, in September of this month, the 26th, said, Christ, not the Bible, is the foundation of our faith. We agree there. But our only authoritative and infallible source of knowledge about Christ is the Bible. Indeed. He says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. A mature Christian faith will indeed say more than that but not less than that. For the Bible tells me so does not mean that we don't have reason to answers to difficult questions, which is really at the heart of where Stanley was going, but it does mean that we admit our dependence upon Scripture and that we confess that God intended for us to be dependent on Scripture. For the Bible tells me so is not where our trouble began. To the contrary, it's right where God wants us. And I I agree, if you're going to question the source of your faith, I'm not sure what much is left of your faith. If you want to know more about Scripture and and, um, Sola Scriptura and those doctrines, we have on our back table as you leave the room here the Cambridge Declaration. And I encourage you to grab one of these if you're not familiar with some of what we're talking about, the inerrancy of Scripture and and its authority. But... going to let this slideshow run a little bit here. This, this is the Martyrs Monument in Oxford, England. I actually had a co-worker and his wife uh, who had traveled there recently for two weeks, and I said, if you're getting to Oxford, he asked, can I bring you back something? You know, a little, he wanted you know, a little souvenir or something. I said, if you get to Oxford, can you get me something of that site? It, it's very important to me from, from our faith. And uh, so he and his wife brought back uh, two pictures. Actually, I have two of them in here, um, and the rest I, I borrowed from the Internet. But what you're seeing here are pictures of Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer. They were bishops in the Church of England, leaders of the Reformation. Cranmer himself, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Ridley, the Bishop of London, and his friend Latimer, the Bishop of Worcester. Latimer and Ridley themselves were martyred on October 16th, in 1555. Cranmer died later, March 21st, 1556, also from 
martyrdom, all three of them were burned at the stake in Oxford for being Protestants, specifically for denying the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. That is that the communion elements that we're going to celebrate tonight literally become the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ when they're blessed by the priest. The inscription on the plaque, I'm going to, well, you saw the, uh, the plaque there. That inscription reads, To the glory of God and in grateful commemoration of his servants, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh, prelates of the Church of England who near this spot yielded their bodies to be burned, bearing witness to the sacred truths that they had affirmed and maintained against the errors of the Church of Rome, and rejoicing that to them it was given not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. This monument was erected in public subscription in the year of our Lord. It's actually 1841. I just want to back up for a minute. That is the actual spot where they were burned. It's just bricks in the road, that are not paved over anymore in light of these three men. And there's a wider shot. And that's all that's left. Sorry, I'm skipping around. And there it is, just those stones. I wonder what Andy Stanley thinks of these three men who died for something that only the Bible told them so. Contrary to what he says, the Bible... contrary to what he says, what the Bible says about Christ and his death is important. And we know it from Scripture. And it is trustworthy and not at all childish. It's not at all indefensible or built on a house of cards, this doctrine of Christ's crucifixion. Without it, the central truth, we can't rightly be called Christians. It is pivotal and essential to us. Essential to following Christ is, is the inspired and fallible teachings of the Bible about his crucifixion. And what we sing about today, it's, it's far more than just a simple fact. And, and I think sometimes we just have a tendency to skip over it and, and affirm the truth. Jesus, who was crucified by Pilate. But there's so much more to it. It's vitally important to zero in, I think, on this elemental and core truth and some of its far-reaching implications. So today we're just going to take a little bit of a, uh, a dive into that and consider for ourselves um, what it is that is meant by this doctrine from Scripture. Sorry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for preserving your word for us, for all the truth and the veracity that it proclaims for us as Christians, how it particularly emphasizes Jesus' crucifixion, his death on the cross, for the forgiveness of sins and all so much more that it means and represents to us. That people have surrendered their lives willingly for what's communicated in your written word is astounding to me. They know they weren't saved simply by holding a Bible, but by holding true to the truths, the Christ that is depicted in the pages of our scripture. We thank you for those examples, those who have gone on before us. Lord, we pray that this time would be edifying and refreshing as we focus on the cross, the work of Jesus Christ, 
uh, for the world and for us. We commit our time to you in, in his precious name. Amen. Our word cross, as you may know, comes from the Latin crux. And it has a couple simple definitions. It's most commonly thought of as the instrument of torture and death and capital punishment used by the Romans for many a time. Indeed, that's what we heard about in Sunday school this morning. Uh, It is the basic central or essential point or feature. You'll talk about the crux of a matter, right? We talk about that all the time or something being crucial, which makes it the critical or transitional moment or issue and a turning point. So we have that in our minds. Why is Jesus' death so important? It's not just a trivial fact of our faith. Why did Paul make such a point about reminding the the Corinthian Christians that he concentrated on that theme when he was preaching and teaching to them? What good is it that we as Christians have a crucified Savior? Well, I hope to give us an idea of that by digging out some of the ramifications. We don't know everything that Paul said to them. We know a great deal of the truths of the cross from as preserved for us in our Bibles. And we don't know precisely what Paul said about, and there's certainly a lot to contemplate. And we're going to uh, dig into that today. Now, I don't want you to be scared when I say that we're going to have 20 reflections on the cross today. We won't obviously have time to drill into each one of them But we're going to just talk about that central truth, the cross of Christ, his crucifixion. And I think sometimes we just state it blatantly and and almost matter-of-factly, but without giving any thought to some of the implications that that statement has, what transpired there. So we're going to go through these. And these aren't original with me. Hopefully you've heard them before. And, And I hope when we're done today that as you're talking over lunch or thinking about the message this afternoon, maybe in your own devotion time, that you can add to this list. And certainly the church has been talking about this for centuries, uh, so we cannot exhaust this topic, but I just wanted to zero in on a couple of the peripheral points. So first you see up there that Jesus' death and his crucifixion is is unique among world religions. Point one, I did a little bit of research because I didn't want to speak out of term, and there certainly are death and resurrection motifs in, in other Uh, myths and legends and and belief systems, but none of them have a God who came and died for his people's sins. None of them have an innocent, holy Savior dying for the guilty in their place. This is unique among us, so it's a truth that we should communicate with great confidence. It was predicted and described centuries before it happened. And utter fulfillment, Isaiah 55 and many of the Messianic Psalms include that for us. So it is unique. This is one of the important points of it. Secondly, his death was in fact the goal of his life. Jesus' death was the goal of his life. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. And John 12, 27, our Savior himself said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And here out of Matthew, Jesus again speaking to us, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. How many of us do you think would live our life knowing full well exactly what the end was going to be, that we came for that single and and foremost purpose, to give it up on a cross? Third, this instrument of death, this cross, from it comes life. While the Romans meant it as a horrible form of capital punishment and to put the the worst offenders in their state to death and as a, a bloody reminder and example for their citizens to not disobey, it in fact gives life. You'll remember that on the cross, Jesus said to one of the thieves that was being crucified with him, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, that meant that he wasn't going to die. That wasn't just the end of his life, that there was something afterwards. So what appeared to be the end was really the beginning for them. And he tells us himself here in John, I am the good shepherd. And he lays down his life for the sheep. The implication is that if he's laying down his life, then he's saving ours. He's protecting his sheep from the enemy. So it's an instrument of death, but at the same time gives life. His death, that moment at the cross, is an end and a beginning. Simultaneously, it accomplishes several things. First, it is, it's the end of the Mosaic sacrificial system or the old covenant. And he was the last sacrifice that would be offered. In fact, we'll get to it later, how the whole Old Testament pointed to this day. So it was the end of Moses and, and even God's good and holy uh, giving of his word in the Old Testament to his people, Israel. But he said that was only for a time. And, he's, and it is at the same time the start of our new covenant, as Jesus said at the Last Supper. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, he took it and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So it's the end of the old and the beginning of the new at the same time. At this cross, at this moment of death, we see judgment and reconciliation also happening at the same time. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it, we, we emphasize, uh, rightly so, the judgment of God being poured out at him. We have a phrase where, where justice met grace or where, where mercy and and justice kissed, sometimes you'll, you'll hear that phrase as well. Sin is dealt with. God's judgment, he had to mete out judgment on sin. But that penalty and that punishment that Christ took for us is what allows God to deliver sinners. It is that single moment in history by which sin is judged and sinners can be reconciled to God at the same time. It is a thought. As that hymn, the old rugged cross, has that beautiful phrase, this emblem of suffering and shame, then indeed becomes an object of boasting and hope for us. We had it read as one of our scriptures at the beginning, Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Again, if you think back to that economy, to what was happening in that society, 
to be hung on a cross, be crucified, was shameful. You had hit rock bottom as a human being and as a Roman citizen. You were, we might say, scum of the earth at that point. It was reserved for the lowest of the low. And it became that emblem of suffering and shame. No one wanted to be held up there. No one wanted to suffer what took place prior to going on that cross and then the hours of agony sometimes that transpired while they were up there. And it was shameful. In fact, people would come and mock those that were hanging on the cross. You remember the account how the Roman soldiers came and and mocked him and, and other people, Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and others, came and they wagged their, shook their head at him and wagged their tongue. Basically, they were mocking Jesus and how they sold his clothes and gambled over them for his, his tunic. So it was despised. But for us, for Paul, we get to glory in that as Christians and say what they meant as the worst of things for us is the best of things. Seventh, that same rugged cross filled with splinters and rough-hewn, that place of ultimate humility and obedience. Here's, Here's the same juxtaposition, things that you might not think of, the end and the beginning, judgment and reconciliation, death and life. We have humility and obedience happening here at the same time. What a powerful example it is for us. Jesus, you'll remember, said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Totally obedient to his Father and the plan that he had for him, for which he came. We're reminded that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 5 tells us. So humility and obedience is represented in that cross. It's not just a mere act of death. I see in that cross that proof that God keeps his promises. Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From before he was born, the word had come as to what was going to take place. And we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, where Abram says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So when you think of that cross, when you look on it, if I don't know if you have a Bible, some of them have crosses in the cover, if you have a, a gold cross necklace or, or some earrings or maybe a tattoo or ring, some other emblem, a pin on your lapel, remember that this was a sign of God's promise and that it's proof that he keeps his promises for us. If we can trust him to do that, then what can't we trust him with 
we see the types of the Old Testament and all of the prophecies fulfilled slightly different than, than God keeping his promises, but of the same nature. We think of the types and shadows of, of Jesus and his crucifixion. What do I mean by those? Well, uh, in Exodus, we have the Passover. That's, that's a foreshadowing of, of Jesus being the Passover lamb. And, and Exodus, the freedom from sin, delivery from bondage of sin that we experience when Christ, the Passover lamb, is crucified and we place our faith in him. And in Leviticus, that whole tabernacle and the whole sacrificial system that's laid out that he put an end to at the cross by his, by his death, his one final substitutionary atonement, it's the fulfillment of all of those things that, that pointed to that. They were types and shadows. They were symbols and emblems striking ideas in the minds of those who were partaking in them and seeing what was taking place and said there's a deeper meaning here and, and it just zooms in to this cross as they get closer to that, that point in time. And the prophets and the Psalms speak of him in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Fulfillment of God's prophecy. Tenth, we're halfway done already. See, it's not so bad. Demonstration of God's forgiving love towards sinners. This is probably the one that most of us think of when we think of the cross, right? John 3.16 immediately probably came to your mind when I started talking about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And indeed, that transpires through Christ on the cross. So we see his forgiveness and his love toward a sinful race that he created, don't forget, by the way, and then he served ultimately to that cross. We see the seriousness of sin displayed on those wooden beams. Romans 6.23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death. And if, if it's not ours, then it was had to be someone else's. And so God is telling the world that our affront to him, our neglect of obeying his word, are shaking our fist at him and saying, you're not the boss of me, is serious stuff. So serious that his own son had to die as a result. But not for his own wrongdoing, not for his, but for ours. So don't forget how serious that little white lie is that you tell, or that glance, or at that woman or that or that man or that little shading on your taxes. Those are serious things. We've already got 12 up there. The cross is both despised and loved. Here's one of those juxtapositions again that's happening at the same time. I already mentioned that hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. Let me just quote two stanzas from it. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. Does it have a wondrous attraction for you? I hope it does. For that dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it 
dark Calvary, in that old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. That's George Bernard wrote that song. And isn't it true when you hear the world out there, and all of us probably have jobs out there in the world, as we say, and we hear people using the Lord's name in vain and affronting Him, and uh, we see crosses borne by people that we know have no idea what that cross signifies and represents, and, and they're just treating it lightly, and, and they hate it. Some actively work against the gospel and are trying to shut us out from the marketplace, would even close our very doors and forbid us from being able to stand here and in this building and, and speak this way openly because it's so despised by them. But for the one who's embraced it and the Savior that hung there, it's loved. It's a sweet, sweet symbol for us. Heaven and hell met here. Now, I'm not inventing a new doctrine. I, you can have my heresy trial later. Um, and uh, bring plenty of rotten fruit, because I've said plenty of things probably. Let me explain what I mean here. There's a common misconception that when Jesus died those three days that he was actually went to hell and and suffered in the flames of hell and and all of that. That's not what I'm talking about here, and and that didn't happen. What I mean is this. If, If we think of heaven as representing God's mercy, his love, and his forgiveness which are indeed, I think, are part and parcel of what we mean by that. And, and at the same time, if we think of hell as, as God's righteous anger and judgment, as we talked about in Brian's Sunday School class today, he asked us for what do we, when we say hell, what do we think of, at least righteous anger and judgment. Then, as I said before, these two ideas met at the cross. That's what I mean. I don't mean that the physical place, heaven, and the physical place, hell, actually came together in some cosmic or galactic or or universal sense, Adams didn't touch Adams. But these ideas, what they represent, what takes place there, became a locus right at that moment. So heaven and hell meet. What meant, what appeared, I said earlier, what appeared as death was in fact life. And what appears as final defeat is in fact final ultimate victory we know that the disciples were just rejected after seeing their teacher, their rabbi, crucified on that cross and buried, taken down, died bodily, and buried in that tomb. They were done. They thought everything they had invested their lives for for three-plus years was done. And they didn't recall what Christ had said to them about his resurrection. They were just so caught up in the grief and the agony of what had transpired. And I can't say that I blame them. I probably would have been distraught myself and and forlorn. Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So what appeared to them as ultimate defeat was, in fact, ultimate 
victory. He was in control. It signifies that that God's plan from all eternity had come to fruition. And he's not done yet, right? We're not at the end of our age. He is still working out his great plan. But we can look back to that moment and say there is the victory. Victory in Jesus, we sing today, right? And it's more than just being able to uh, leap over a wall or run through a troop. It's victory over our sin. It's victory over the baggage of this living in this fallen world. It's victory over the things that control us and grip us, our anger, our hatred, our lust, our jealousy, our greed. You know, victory over those things because of Christ's victory on the cross. Fifteenth, we had read for us that the cross is both foolishness and wisdom at the same time. Here again are these two opposite ideas being brought together for us out of 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. Can I have that verse? No. was read, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Just try to talk to somebody at work or on the street corner at the supermarket that you believe in a Savior, a Messiah, who was crucified on a cross. They'll laugh at you. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, Where? in the Bible, in the Old Testament, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where then is the wise? Or where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased him through the folly of what we preach to save those who do believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. One and the same time, this foolish symbol, this thing that will get you laughed at or mocked or maybe kicked out of your club or perhaps uh, exited from work uh, unexpectedly, if you mention it too much, is also God's wisdom on display, not only to humanity, but to his creation. Scripture says that this is going to be on display for all of eternity, what Christ did there. And we're a part of that if we have faith in Christ and his crucifixion. Brian mentioned this also in Sunday school. I told you he preached about half my sermon this morning, that the cross, Jesus' death, is at the locus of human history and our faith. From the Garden of Eden, a Savior was predicted. Everything from then until this moment of Jesus' death was leading up to that. Everything from then to the point of his cross was leading up to it. It all intertwined, and and there's winding roads, and sometimes the story goes off here, and you think, how is God going to bring that back? And, And yet he does over and over. And now we look back on that cross as the crux of our faith, if I can borrow that. And without his crucifixion, well, we're not much of a band of Christians without that. Without his crucifixion and actually his subsequent resurrection, describing Christianity could be reduced to us merely assenting to what some others have described 
as the unoriginal moral teachings of a well-meaning but misguided and maybe even deluded first-century Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter, if he was even a real person at all. But because of this act of him willingly putting himself on that cross, we have a faith that we can proclaim to others. We have a human history that points forward to it from the garden, and we look back to it and will until Christ's final return and putting an end to this. We will look back to that. That's one of the reasons that we say our creed every week is to remind us of those that have come before us and what they believed concerning our faith. And we say sometimes that those who come after us will be reciting those same words, those same elemental truths, and they hinge on that moment of the cross. It's the main point of the Old Testament. If you remember the account of the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus, we said how how depressed and, and distraught they were after Jesus' crucifixion. And from Luke 24... Remember that there were a couple on the road to Emmaus and they're lamenting what's taking place and and they're talking about it with themselves and Jesus appears, but they don't know it's him yet. And he appears and he says, what are you guys talking about? That's how we would say it. He said it slightly different, but that's what we would say. What are you guys talking about? And they stop and in, in sheer astonishment, they say, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened this weekend? He was the only person who fully knew what happened in Jerusalem that weekend. And then he says to this, as he's explaining it, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can't help but wonder what of those things Andy Stanley might jettison from his reading of the Old Testament our faith isn't built on what's contained in that word. I don't know. That was the account. Do you realize that not only Christ died on the cross, but others have died because of it? Men, women, and children, if we think about today, just think about what ISIS is doing to Christians other parts of the world. Going back a little bit further, I think of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian. That movie, The Tip of the Spear, where they gave their lives for the Aka Indians. That gospel. Backing up even further, we can go to the three men that I showed at the beginning. Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, and Nicholas Ridley, giving their lives for the gospel for what Christ did on that cross. And backing up even more in that same uh, part of the world, John Wycliffe, he was declared a heretic by the Council of Constance way back in 1415, a long time ago. You know what they did about 34 years later after after his death? He was declared a heretic. He had died 34 years before that. They dug up his body and burned it, and along with his works and his writings, and then spread the ashes in a nearby river. People have given up their lives for this truth 
the disciples and the apostles. We know of John the Baptist and, of course, James and John, Peter, Andrew, Paul, and the list goes on of those who have surrendered themselves to the truth of this cross. And then we could go to Hebrews 11 and read of the Old Testament heroes of the faith and how they were sawn in two and thrown to lions and all of that that took place. Men not worthy to walk this earth, it says. And they were looking forward to a Christ that hadn't come yet but had a glimpse of what was to transpire. This cross is powerful. It's impactful. And it's more than just a few hours in world history. There's these implications. On the flip side, without this cross and his resurrection, there's no salvation from sin and no reconciliation to God. We would be, of most people, most miserable, Paul says, if Christ didn't raise from the dead because then we would have no hope. In order to raise from the dead, he had to what? Die first. That cross had to come before the tomb. Imagine for a minute if, if it were possible somehow that Jesus could have died due to an accident or a natural disaster. He was on the sea a lot, maybe drowning, sickness, or old age. There would be no atonement for sin. There would be no reconciliation to God. We would be hopelessly lost in our sins. Praise God that wasn't possible, but if you just think for a moment. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So it's vitally important, this cross. And finally, there's just no gospel message without it. There are many central things that we need to know about about Christ. He's, He's God and He is Creator. We know we have to have His advent, His his incarnation, His virgin birth. That's essential. His living a sinless life is so important to what we're talking about. Of course, His death. And then His subsequent burial and His resurrection. Two more items. And then His final return. All of these things together are Christianity. They are our faith. They are what we should be telling others about, what we sing about here, what we pray through and pray for and what we're talking about. And then going back to 1 Corinthians. Paul again, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Regarding those pegs, those linchpins that I just mentioned about Jesus being God and creator and, and everything that followed, many of us have theological systems that have a certain number of points or certain truths that we, that we affirm. And some will say, well, if you lose one point, then, then you lose everything. Well, your system may fall, your systemization may crumble, and you may need to find another one, but your faith shouldn't. Of one of those, but if we lose Jesus' sinless life, then we have no perfect sacrifice for sin. If we lose him as God, then he doesn't have creative power and authority over his creation. If he never came, he couldn't live a sinless life, he couldn't die. If he didn't die, he couldn't be buried. If he wasn't buried, he couldn't be raised from the dead. 
he didn't raise from the dead, he can't come back again. That is the unbroken chain. Those are the foundations. Those truths are the pegs by which we stand or fall. Systemizations are nice and fine, but it's those truths that are meaningful and at the crux, at the center, is our Savior on that cross. I'll leave you with this quote. We've covered all 20. That wasn't so bad. And again, I hope you'll you'll take time this afternoon maybe to add to this list. Think of your own. And Scripture is full of it. We've been talking about this event for 2,000 plus years. And if the Lord delays His return another 2,000 plus, they'll still be talking about it then. It's so vitally important. But let me leave you with this quote from one of my favorites. Uh, J.C. Ryle. And he says, Let us turn from the story of the crucifixion every time we read it with hearts full of praise. Let us praise God for the confidence it gives us as the ground of our hope and our pardon. Our sins may be many and great, but the payment made by our great substitute far outweighs them all. Let us praise God for the view in given us out of the love of our Father in heaven. He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, will surely with him give us all things. Not least, let us praise God for the view it gives us of the sympathy of Jesus with all his believing people. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what suffering is. Jesus is just the Savior that an infirm body with a weak heart in an evil world requires. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the essential truths of your word, for telling us about this great Savior that we are in such desperate need of for bringing so many things together in that one moment in history on that cross. And for leaving behind for us this record in your word of what was to come, what came, and what is to come after. We do give you praise and glory and hearts of thanksgiving for Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. For his dealing with sin in such a way that those of us that have faith in that never have to worry about it being held against us again. What a glorious truth. What a glorious gospel we have to declare to the world. And we thank you for all its power, for all its meanings that we are yet to grasp and will spend an eternity comprehending and proclaiming. We give you thanks and praise and glory to Jesus our Lord. Would you please stand with us as we sing, as we're dismissed about this wonderful story found in the infallible Word of God.